the band L7. They were a short-lived post-punk group in Detroit in the early 1980s. And although the band was over by 1983, with those members going on to join groups like Laughing Hyenas, L7 were a foundational piece of the city's growing punk scene at that time. And they only ever released one 7-inch under Touch and Go Records, but now Third Man Records is giving the band its due with the release of a self-titled full album this uh, week, July 31st. So during that time period of the early 80s, producer and former Sonic Youth drummer Steve Shelley he is a Michigan native and was part of the city's punk scene and very good friends with the members of L7. So I got to speak with him and Third Man Records' Dave Buick about the legacy of the band 40 years on. We started out by talking about how Shelley almost joined L7, but instead left Michigan for New York, met the band that would become Sonic Youth, and the rest is history. Here's Shelley responding to that legendary story. stretching it a little bit. But I, I did audition for the band once. Um, after my friend uh, Corey Clark had left the band, the band was considering uh, continuing on, which which they did for a little bit with uh, Chris Moore from Negative Approach substituting. But I, I think I made it to one audition, and uh, um, I was still living in Midland, Michigan at the time, and, and uh, Larissa asked me, um, did I plan on moving to Detroit? And I think at the time I told her, that I was going to commute. <laughs> and so um, at that time, I did not get the gig. <laughs> well, I wanted to ask you about that because around 1980 is when, when L7 started performing uh, out live. You were living in mid-Michigan. You're about 18 or so, Steve? Yeah, yeah uh, um, 18 to 20, 21. I, I moved away from Michigan when I was 23. Okay, and so you were then coming down to Detroit for shows. Were you playing in bands at, at that time? I, I was. I was in a number of bands. I was in several bands that opened for L7, I, I guess, which cemented my, um, you know, being such a big fan of the of the band. But um, the first band that I played in that opened for L7 was called Faith and Morals. And that was based in East Lansing. And I was also in a group called uh, Spastic Rhythm Tarts, played occasionally with L7. And I was in other punk bands from Lansing, Michigan. It's such a storied time period for many, many cities. This late 70s, moving into the early 80s, the, the changeover from punk to post-punk to, to hardcore to more experimental uh, music and Detroit was no different than uh, any other city. I'm really curious though, when we go back and talk about this time period, really, Steve, can you can you put us there? What was it like? Well, it's hard. It's it, <laughs> it is hard uh, to imagine what it was like, but it, it was um, you know it was underground. That was the best <laughs> um, <laughs> um, description of um, you know of the musical underground in the late '70s and early '80s. Uh, no one cared about it, and only the players, uh, and, you know, the people that were there cared about it. Um, so it was a labor of love. It was something that you did. You never thought you were going to become rich and famous or, you know, it was really small goals that, that each group had set for themselves. You know, you started off hoping to get a show, and then you hoped to get another show, or maybe I could play out of town someday. And then, you know, you hope to release a single or 
you know, get a track on a compilation. So the goals were, were very small and, um, you know, and, but it was still a lot of fun. It was, you know, more fun than anything. So, um, so that's a little bit of what it was like. It was a lot of driving and, um, you know, a lot of nights of playing to small audiences. And I would imagine, you know, with the small audiences, probably a lot of other, you know, members of different bands being in that audience, sort of playing to your peers. Sometimes, yeah. Yeah, and that, those were the fun days, you know, when 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 you would see people that you, you liked their music or you respected them. And, um, you know, if there was a shared community of, you know, a musical uh, communal group, then, then that was great when that happened. too much, but there are at least a generation of now of people who are uh, have grown up with the internet and they have no idea what it was like how to find out about music, that it was just a, a tape that a friend of a friend might have, you know, like, given you, or you had to, if you were lucky enough to have a good record store in town, you know, to go and find something. Exactly, exactly. Um, Mixtapes were, were um, the greatest thing back then because your friends would make you, um, you know, a mixtape with their favorite songs from the import or indie albums that they had or singles that they had. And not everybody had the same ones because, you know, they were all expensive or hard to find. But um, we did in Lansing, we had uh, the great store of flat black and circular, which is still there. And, um, you know, we would go there and comb through the import bins and, and, uh, um, so it, it, it wasn't, you know, it was amazing and it made, it made your scores, um, that much bigger, you know, when you found something that you loved, you know, it, you really got into it. And, you know, the music that I loved in that period is still really, really big in my life. You know, things like, you know, Gang of Four or, um, Echo and the Bunny Man or L7, the Joy Division, those were all really big things, uh, to some of us in the early eighties. How did you began to get to know the members of L7. I met the, the members of L7 because I was in bands opening for them. And eventually, um, one of the groups that was called Spastic Rhythm Tarts, and it later became Strange Fruit, we had Dave Rice produce uh, a demo tape for us. So, you know, that's how you became closer with people back then. So that, that was a lot of, you know, sharing music and sharing the bill and, uh, you know... <laughs> I was in another band that traveled to London, Ontario, opening for um, for L7 several nights, uh, sort of a residency that that went uh, really, really wrong. <laughs> it went wrong. What happened? Um, it was just it was just a, a, a horrifying weekend in, um, in in London, Ontario, which I'm sure is a great place now. But at the time, it was a little bit backward and. Uh, um, just uh, a lot of musicians were hassled and uh, a lot of um, redneck type mentality, at least at, at that time. Was there a, a violence at the show? Yeah, there was some. Yeah. And uh, we stayed in, a, uh, I guess, what you would call a flop house. Some of us, 
you know, we thought the flop house was empty, but then as it got later in the night, um, people would return to their rooms and, and you'd hear coughing and, uh, you know, uh, people being unwell, uh, and, un, oh. you know, throughout the floor. So it was, it was a really, it was an eye opener to, you know, young kids in their, their early twenties, you know, yeah. this is getting out and, um, you know, this is this is touring. This is glamorous life of touring. <laughs> well, you know, talking about those days, uh, L7 were active between 1980 and 1983, including uh, members from earlier punk bands here in Detroit, The Blind, Retro, Algebra Mothers, uh, and it was fronted by a, uh, a singer named Larissa Strickland, who had just an incredible stage presence from everything that I've I've been reading and hearing. Can you talk about her a bit? Yeah, Larissa was great. L- Larissa was this incredible element of of this this band um, L7. And at the time, uh, we never saw her with a guitar, which is funny because she later became such an incredible guitar player um, when she um, continued on with Laughing Hyenas years later. But at the time, she was a singer, and um, in a way, she was a um, you know she was an American version of of. Uh, John Lydon and Susie Sue, or, or I mean, she's she's indescribable, uh, really. And for years, I've been telling people about L Seven, and um, and it's always been strange um, trying to describe Larissa because she was unique. Uh, she was a great lyricist, a great front person, and um, she was what attracted a lot of us to this incredible band. And Dave, I'd like to get you in on this as well, as you know, Third Man is reissuing L7 on July 31st. As you've listened back to these recordings, how big do you think their influence was? Oh, man. I mean, their influence wasn't as big as it should have been because, you know, unfortunately not as many people heard them. But I, I'm willing to wager a bet that, you know, a, a good chunk of the people that did experience them live and were a fan of... The single, the one single that uh, Corey put out on Touch and Go's sub, sub-label Special Forces, because they were a little too arty, um, I would have to imagine that her influence, you know, was, you know, very, like, was immeasurable and really huge. I know, I know she, you know, influenced a lot of the hardcore bands, even though she wasn't, you know, the sound didn't influence, you know, the L7 sound wasn't necessarily the influence. It was kind of more like the freedom, I, I, I imagine, I think, what I've gathered from people that were there. The freedom she expressed and the, the, just the way she carried herself and the whole band and just that they were not afraid to do something different. You know, they didn't sound like, you know, Stooges or MC5-esque Detroit punk. They didn't sound like any of the hardcore groups. They kind of had, they definitely, you know, like Steve was saying, you know, uh, they definitely had more of a uh, English, you know, rough tradey type vibe to them to me. Yeah, and I think also, um, you know, that they did acknowledge some of the past, although they didn't sound like the Stooges or MC5, but um, they were known to play uh, several Yardbirds tunes, which is probably the first place I ever heard those Yardbirds tunes. And, you know, that Frank Callis was a little bit older than the rest of us, and he had played in different kinds of groups. I think that was really important to the sound of the band, that, that Frank was a somewhat funky bass player and a somewhat melodic bass player and um then you know him teamed up with um with dave rice and scott sure was you know you know obviously you know dave and i are so um so into this that it was really important the way that the three of them played together yeah dave rice you you know you can obviously tell that his his guitar playing went on to influence and you know it kind of you know 
instruct, you know, the way Larissa ended up being. Um, yeah, the, the two, Frank and Dave, and yeah, they're, they're all crazy, you know. Just, it blew me away when I first heard it. And uh, we do have to mention that uh, Larissa Strickland did uh, pass away, unfortunately, in 2006. Uh, and I would like both of you to answer this and tell me if, if I'm, I'm wrong about this, but it seemed in the late 70s punk scene, there were more women on stage in uh, places like Britain than there were in the U.S. Did, is that, am I right in that? Or was there, did it take a little bit longer for women to kind of like etch out a presence in post-punk and punk and these genres here in, in the States? I was just going to say it's hard, it's hard for me to measure that because there were a lot of women around our, you know, our small scene, you know, with Larissa in, in L7 and, um, you know, and then with winding up with me playing with Sonic Youth and Kim, Kim being there and before that uh, playing with Sherry Fight and, and Strange Fruit. So there were always women around and maybe our, our micro scene. But, um, but, but I think in general you, you might be right that, um, that, that England and other places were more open to, to um, men and women sharing the stage together than, than, than the USA. Yeah, I mean, I I definitely wasn't there, but just no, just from what I know, and I've been you know fairly obsessive uh, music nerd, uh, especially punk and punk and post punk, uh, you know, since the mid '80s when I got into the scene. Um, when I, I mean, I guess I wasn't into the scene; I was in high school and just before high school, going to shows. But uh, you know, you it seemed like you know women on stage, you know, whether they're in the band or. Um, you know, fronting, you know, whether they're playing uh, instruments or fronting the band, like, to me, it always seemed more like a, yes, a, a British thing or or New York or L.A. or something. It seemed like a, it didn't really seem like there was, and I know there are, and I, I, I love them, and I, you know, I have a, a, a fairly, a fairly good collection of, of that type of music with um, women in the band and fronting the bands, but it, it just didn't seem as, as, as common in, you know, a place like Detroit or, uh, you know, just in middle America, they didn't seem like it was a giant. Uh, it seemed like it was more of a dudes club than a than a you know all inclusive sort of situation. Especially, especially the hardcore scene, which yeah. which L Seven were just on the edge of it or the outside of it. You know that that was very much a, a boys boys club. You yeah. know, you know, with the slam dancing and, and all kinds of things that were going on with, with that stuff at the time. Before I let you both go, Steve, we go ahead first. What do you want the uh, the legacy of L Seven to to be, especially especially to those who who maybe haven't heard the band before? I guess just that they were a really uh, crucial, important band of the early '80s in 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 the states, and um, you know, someone that we should remember, um, as well as the Gun Club and um, the Minutemen and. and uh, and Dream Syndicate, and um, you know they—they they were a really important band. They just didn't uh, get documented at the time, other than the single, which—which which is a lot of a lot of us. Uh, that's our favorite record. You know, just that they should be, be listened to and enjoyed. Yeah.
93.7. I spoke with Steve Shelley, producer and former Sonic Youth drummer and Michigan native. He was part of the team that put together this new LP of unreleased and live material of the band, which is being released on Third Man Records this Friday, July 31st. Uh, It is an essential piece of Detroit's indie and punk scene history, so uh, pick it up when it gets released uh, this Friday. You're listening to Culture Shift. Third Man's debut was a part of that interview as well. I'm Amanda LeClaire.